He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not believe the Son does not have life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even so we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're just so grateful to be here, thankful that you have provided so much for us. Father, we're thankful that we have your word, that we have fairly accurate translations of your word, that we possess these. In many cases, we have several copies of your word. But Father, it's, we recognize that it's not enough to simply have your word in our possession, but to, we must internalize it. We must learn what it means. We must read it. We must memorize it. We must internalize it, make it part of our very lives. As Jeremiah pictured this, we must eat your word, for it is good. We must absorb it into every aspect of our being. Father, as we study your word, we are often challenged with our own favorite opinions, our own favorite sins, and our own uh, favorite beliefs, and we have to learn to be transformed not to be conformed to the thinking of the world around us, not to be conformed to that which is popular or that which is comfortable, but that we might be transformed by the renewing of our mind, as Paul says, and that the only way to do that is to learn your word, to study your word. And, Father, so as we study your word today, we pray that you would help us to understand the significance of what we are studying that we may think about ways to apply it, and that God the Holy Spirit would make clear to us how we are to transform our thinking in relation to what we study. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to begin today in the next sentence of Ephesians 1. We have the opening salutation in verses 1 and 2, and then there was an extended eulogy in the sense of a good saying or a blessing. Hebrew word is bracha, a blessing statement from 3 through 14, which is the longest sentence in the epistle to the Ephesians. Starting in verse 15, we have the second longest sentence in the epistle to the Ephesians, and the focus here is not on what God has provided for us, but the focus is on our response to that and an understanding of its implications as exemplified through this prayer of the Apostle Paul. And so when we uh, look at this, if I can, there we go, we're going to look at Paul's prayer and 
it's a fascinating study to look at all of Paul's prayers because they give us examples of how we should pray and what we should pray for. And if these are the things that we are to pray for, then that means these are things that we should prioritize in our own spiritual life. Often when people pray, I think that we pray in rather superficial ways. We think about immediate needs. We think about uh, a lot of prayers related to health issues, related to people we know, our own health issues, financial issues, things that are of immediate and pressing uh, uh, concerns in our lives. But what we have in the Scripture is something that is much more profound, a way of praying about our own spiritual life and our own spiritual growth. And so we see this exemplified in this next section, which goes from verse 15 down through verse 23. It begins in verse 1, excuse me, in uh, verse 15, where Paul says, Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. We see that in the King James or New King James, it ends that sentence with a colon, which indicates not as full a stop as a period. Other translations will put a comma there. In fact, in, in one of the Greek texts I look at, they don't even punctuate anything. They just leave out all commas and everything else, and it's just one uh, one long sentence. If you'll look at uh, some of your other translations, you'll see that they seem to supply a comma at the end of each particular sentence. One of the things that's interesting, you learn little nuances to translations, but there are two things that I always thought was interesting about the King James translation, and that was, first of all, it was written to be read out loud. And therefore, the, they try to make each sentence or each verse a sentence. Now, they couldn't do that everywhere. That's one of the reasons you'll see a comma uh, at the end of each verse. And that was originally designed more to inform the public reading of the Scripture to take a pause than it was to mark out syntax. But over time these uh, punctuation marks shifted their significance from the uh, marking out how it was to be read out loud to uh, indicating more of, of, uh, more of a syntax. So what we see here in these verses, in one long sentence, most of which is talking about the content of Paul's prayer. In the opening two verses, in verses 15 and 16, which I just read to you, the focus here is on the fact that Paul is praying for them whenever he is reminded of them. It begins with this as a conclusion, therefore. We'll talk about that in just a minute. He said, therefore, I also, and then you have a temporal clause, and so you don't get the main verb until you get to verse 16. Do not cease to give thanks for you. That's the main idea of this whole section is in that uh, independent clause at the very beginning. And then everything else that we have somehow relates to or feeds into that. 
as he begins to explain what the content of that prayer is, beginning in verse 17. And so it's quite interesting to see what his priorities are when he begins uh, this prayer. So in the King James, what we read here in the New King James is it begins with a therefore, and I always point out that whenever you have a therefore, you need to see what it's there for, and that translates this phrase in the Greek, diatutu, which doesn't uh, literally mean therefore. Usually that is another uh, another word that is used. This word, this phrase rather, prepositional phrase, is an idiom which has the same sense, but it says for this reason. And the word tuta there is the word for this, a demonstrative pronoun, which means it's referring back to something, something specific. And that to which it refers is everything that is said between verse 3 and verse 14. So we could paraphrase it this way. In light of all of the spiritual provisions, assets, or benefits which God has given to each of you, that is, as members of the body of Christ, you have been appointed and foreordained to a new mission and purpose. You have been adopted into God's royal family. You have been redeemed and forgiven positionally of your sins, and you have been marked out as God's own possession by the Holy Spirit, who is the down payment of your future redemption. And then he thanks God for them and pointedly and intentionally prays for them. That summarizes the sense of what we see starting in verse 15. The therefore is translated uh, different ways in different translations. The uh, Holman Christian Study Bible translates it, this is why. The New American Standard translates it for this reason, as do several others. Those seem to be the primary ways in which this word is translated. He says, therefore, I also, and in the, in the Greek, you don't always have to put a, a first-person pronoun into a sentence to, have a, to know who is speaking. The verb itself is a first-person singular, so we know Paul is saying, I, I heard, but he repeats it for emphasis and joins it to a conjunction, so he is emphasizing the fact that I also, he's, he's emphasizing this shift from what God did in verses 3 through 14 to now what Paul is doing uh, for them as a result of what he has heard about them. And it's interesting that when we have the word hearing in Scripture, it doesn't just mean to have your uh, your ears, your auditory nerves stimulated. It means to hear and with a response. When you tell somebody, perhaps a child or someone else, and say, well, you didn't listen to me, it, what you're really saying is you didn't do what I said to do. And you find this over and over again in the Scripture that God says, if you listen to me, you obey my word. If you didn't obey my word, then you really didn't listen to me. And so this is what part of the nuance of what Paul is saying here is, that the, the response, once he hears about how God is working in the spiritual life of the congregation in Ephesus, 
it brings about a response, and that response is to pray, pray for them. And so he is uh, going to pray for them. It's a participle in the Greek, and it is because it's aorist, it has the idea of something that has already, uh, already occurred, and it can be taken as either a, a temporal participle, which would be translated after I heard, and it can also be taken as causal, since I heard. And somehow this, both aspects of that get communicated here. So it is uh, after he gets a report on them, then he is going to respond uh, in prayer. And he's given a report about their spiritual advance. And if we remember our study in Acts and the progression of Paul's ministry, that in his second ministry, uh, second uh, missionary journey, he went to Ephesus, and he was there for three years. So he had a d- tremendous knowledge of the people who were in Ephesus, but now he is in prison in Rome, and it has been five or maybe six years since he has been in Ephesus. And over that course of time, they have been very responsive to the Word, and the Holy Spirit has produced a lot of fruit in their lives in terms of spiritual production, spiritual maturity, and also he has used them to bring many others to a faith in Jesus Christ, understanding the gospel. So during those five or six years, there are many new people there in Ephesus, and we also know that, I briefly touched on this at the beginning, that Paul wrote this probably to the church at Ephesus. There's some doubt as to whether the phrase in Ephesus was in the original, but it was designed like the epistle to the Colossians and others to be circulated among these uh, churches in the this area of eastern, what is now eastern Turkey. So it wasn't simply directed or only directed to the church in Ephesus. And so he is praising them for the fact that they have grown. He has heard good news from them in contrast to, for example, 1 Corinthians, where he starts off almost immediately reprimanding them for all of the various uh, sins that they are accepting in their congregation. And, and most of the first uh, two-thirds of that epistle are correcting problems in Corinth. Or in Galatians, in Galatians chapter 1, he just lays into them right away because they have perverted the gospel. They have bought into a false gospel, what he calls another gospel, not the gospel that was preached to them. And so these were epistles designed to be uh, corrections. But then there were other epistles, for example, the epistles to the churches in uh, Philippi. He had some corrections there, but it was mostly a a letter of praise, the letter to the uh, Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, is also a letter uh, of, of much praise. And so uh, Ephesians is one where he starts off very positively praising them because of what is being produced spiritually in their lives. So he says, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus... Now, this is interesting because he expresses the object of faith through the prepositional clause in the Lord, your faith 
in the Lord. And so this is used several times by Paul, and it expresses the object of our faith. But it's a faith, as we look at this, we have to discern, is, this, is he talking about their faith in terms of their salvation phase one, justification, or is he talking about their continued faith and trust in the Lord in terms of their spiritual growth in phase two? Now, there are several times when Paul uses this expression, pistuo in, believe in Jesus. Now, one of the things that comes up when you may be having conversations with people or trying to understand some things, and you may hear some uh, preacher or some pastor make a point uh, about this, that there are two different ways that the New Testament uh, expresses our belief, what we believe in, the object of our faith. In several passages, Paul uses this phrase pistuo, which is the verb for faith, and then the preposition in. Now, it's not as obvious in Romans 3.25 because it's, it's not translated clearly, and this is why I have a bracketed section there explaining that, uh, but it, is, it uses that same phrase. It uses the verb pistuo and then the object of the faith is expressed through the preposition in. Whom God set forth, that whom is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ there, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. Now, propitiation means, has the concept of satisfaction, and that through Christ's death on the cross, he satisfied the justice and the righteousness of God. The phrase in his blood is a metaphor that is typically used throughout Scripture, that it's not through the physical properties of his blood, but that his the shedding of blood is a metaphor for a violent uh, form of death. And it goes back to Genesis chapter 9 when God is making a covenant with Noah, and part of that was the establishment of, of capital punishment. And he said, if anyone sheds man's blood... By man, his blood should be shed. So the shedding of blood is a metaphor or picture of a violent uh, form of physical death. So literally what the Greek says here, whom God set forth as a propitiation through faith in his blood, that is through faith in his death. And that, so the object of faith then is expressed through that Greek preposition in. In Colossians 1.4, we read, Paul saying, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. Now, this verse is parallel to the one we are reading in Ephesians chapter 1. There are a lot of similarities between Ephesians and Colossians, and this is one of them. And so he says here, he defines, We heard of your faith in Christ, and there it's the preposition in then in 2 Timothy 3.15, as Paul is praising uh, Timothy and reminding him of the importance, the centrality of Scripture in his life, and he goes on to emphasize that it is breathed out by God in the next verse, he says, and that from, the childhood, from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus, and that's the preposition in. 
But in the Gospel of John, John uses a different phraseology. And this is where things get into a bit of a discussion and argument with some people because there are people who say, oh, believing has got to be more personal. But in John, we have the phraseology pistuo eis. You believe that. And it's often translated as believing in. And scholars have done a lot of work on this. And in terms of the semantic value of ace and in in this kind of a clause, they're virtually interchangeable. Now, one of the reasons this comes into play is because people misunderstand faith. Faith is not commitment. Often people, especially those in the who have been influenced by lordship teaching say that belief is commitment. But if you look up in any dictionary, it never gives the word commitment as a, as a definition or a word that you would translate faith by. Faith means to believe something. The something that we believe is a proposition. It is not something personal. Often you will hear people misstate the gospel by, by asking people, do you want to have a relationship with Jesus? Other times you will see people say, well, I committed my life to Christ, or I decided I needed to have a relationship with Jesus. And they're emphasizing something personal. But those ideas that I just mentioned are not part of the semantic value of, the na- of, of this concept of faith in When you study faith, faith is always an act of belief where you are accepting something as true. That which you are accepting as true can be stated in the form of a proposition. Now, a proposition is simply a, a declarative statement. Any kind of declarative statement is a proposition. You can say there is a Costco over on Bunker Hill and I-10. Now, that's either true or false. And so a proposition is always a, a statement that can be falsified or verified. When we believe something, the something that we believe is a proposition. The proposition is that Jesus is the Messiah who died for our sins. You are not having a personal relationship with God to begin with or with Christ to begin with, that comes secondarily. That comes as a result of having a belief in a proposition that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. problem that you have is people say you need to have a relationship with Jesus, but Judas had a relationship with Jesus for three years. His relationship with Jesus was such that the other 11 disciples had no idea who Jesus was talking about when he said, one of you will betray me, because Judas's relationship to Jesus looked just like their relationship to Jesus. But Judas was not a believer because, and that is why he was not saved. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. That's what makes the difference. We believe a proposition, and a proposition is something that can be either verified or falsified. The result of believing the gospel, which is the salvific proposition that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, the result of believing that is that then we are made alive, we are regenerated, 
we're given the righteousness of, of Christ, and we are given eternal life. And we are also adopted into God's royal family. That is when the relationship with God, with Christ, begins. Because now we are spiritually alive and we can have that relationship. We cannot have a relationship with God if we're spiritually dead. And the way to be born again is to believe in the gospel. And so we have these clear statements over and over again in John. I just picked out a few verses to illustrate this. John 3.16, a favorite verse that is used by many, many people when they witness. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, there's the proposition. In Hebrew, I mean, in Greek, it's ace autan. It's the same verb, pistuo, ace, not pistuo in. But it means the same thing. Believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then in John three eighteen, he who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. All of these believe in statements are using the preposition ace and not the preposition in. John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. Same, same preposition. And then at the end of the gospel, John writes... But these are written that you might believe that. Same preposition, believe, but here it's translated that. Believe that, and here it gives the content of that proposition. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so this is the expression of the gospel over and over again. So Paul writes, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. And so he identifies Jesus here by the phrase Lord, which is curios, and this is a recognition of the deity of Christ. You will often find those in what we call the Lordship camp saying you have to believe in the Lordship of Christ. And when they explain that, what they're saying is you have to believe at for when you're regenerate, you have to believe that Jesus is the so- your sovereign Lord and you will do whatever he tells you to do. That's how they interpret Lord. But the issue in using the word Lord to apply to Jesus is that he's deity. Lord is a term to describe Yahweh, the living God of the Old Testament. And so when, Je- when we say Jesus is Lord, what we are saying is Jesus is God. It is an expression of his deity. So our faith is in the Lord Jesus. Notice that in John twenty thirty one, we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That emphasizes his deity. The phrase Son of God does not indicate that uh, that God is gave was gave birth to Jesus in some manner but that Jesus is God. It's an idiom in uh, in Hebrew. 
so that if you have somebody who is a murderer, he would be called a son of a murderer. Somebody whose life was destructive or they were destructive, they would be called a son of destruction, or if they were foolish, they'd be called a son of a fool. So son of God says that he is fully divine, son of man that he is fully human. So this is what we have here Then the statement, Lord Jesus. Lord refers to his deity. Jesus is his uh, human name, Jesus, who was born as a man in Nazareth. And then he says, and your love for all the saints. So he's heard about two things. He summarizes all that he has heard in these two areas, your faith in the Lord Jesus. I don't believe this is phase one because he already knew most of them were, were saved. But he's hearing how they are continuing to grow and mature in the spiritual life and that they continue to believe in Jesus after their salvation. And the second thing that he's heard is their love for all the saints. Now, the Greek word here is uh, agape. Agape is a broad term for love. The counterpart is philos. Philos is uh, a also means love, but it has a sense of a more intimate love where you know and have a relationship with the, with the person that you are, are loving. So they are demonstrating their love for all the saints. The term saints refers to those who are believers in Jesus Christ. It's not a special category of believer. It is a reference to every believer. At the instant of salvation, we're all set apart to God. The word saint comes from the noun hagios, which means holy are those who are set apart to the service of God, and it applies to every every single believer. So that in verse 2 of this chapter, Paul addresses this epistle to the saints who are in Ephesus, that is, to all of the believers in Jesus Christ who are in Ephesus. Now, the concept of their love for all the saints goes back to Jesus' primary command to his disciples in John 13, 34, and 35. There he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another, and by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, what Jesus is talking about here is, is pretty clear. First of all, he says that we're to love one another. This is in distinction to the command in the Old Testament to love your neighbor as yourself, because your neighbor in Israel was anybody else who came into your periphery. Here he limits this. He's not, he's not rejecting the idea of loving your neighbor, but he, for, the, for believers he is focusing this on loving one another, loving other believers. You are to love one another, and in the Old Testament command it was to love your neighbor like you love yourself. But here Jesus is saying you're to love your neighbor as I have loved you. So the pattern... The blueprint for love is Jesus. And Jesus doesn't go around in the Gospels with some sort of sentimental, emotional love. You don't see Jesus with this sloppy agape that you hear from a lot of Christians today that is very superficial and where there's no real knowledge or desire to do that which is best for the object of their love. 
the best way to define biblical love is that we desire to do that which is best for the object of our love. Now, that has to be qualified because what's best for the object of our love is not what we think is best. That just ends up in personal manipulation. It's understanding what God says is best. There's an objective criteria there. It's not a subjective criteria. And we are to love them in that way, and that calls for some spiritual maturity to understand what the, uh, what the issues are there. And so in John 13, 34, or 35, Jesus goes on to say that this is the mark of a genuine disciple, not a genuine believer, because somebody can be a believer in Christ and he's not showing any kind of love to anybody. He's out of fellowship, he's in carnality, he's living according to his sin nature, and he's just as selfish and self-absorbed as any unbeliever. But for those who are disciples, that is, those who are pursuing spiritual maturity, the standard is to love others as Christ loved us. In John 15, 9 and 10, Jesus expands on this. There's a lot that John covers in relationship to love in the what is called the Upper Room Discourse, which is John 13 through John, uh, John 16. And in John 15, he says, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. Now, in the 15th chapter of John, abiding is in Christ is related to fellowship, to intimate connection to the Lord as uh, the fruit and the vine. It is a picture of an intimate fellowship. So we are to stay in that intimate relationship, remain in that intimate relationship, but when we sin, we have to recover. How do we know if we love God? This is a question. In fact, somebody asked me this right before class this morning. How do we know that we love God? Is it a feeling? A lot of people will emote a lot about how they love Jesus and how they love God. But the Scripture says that there is an objective measurement, an objective metric for determining if you love God. Love for God is determined by obedience. And Jesus said this several times in several ways. John says it not only in the gospel, but also in the uh, first epistle, especially chapter 4 says a lot about uh, the believer in love. Uh, Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Now, what does he mean by keeping his commandments? He refers to basically the mandates in the New Testament that relate to the church age believer. All of those, whether whether Jesus said it directly and it's recorded in the Gospels or whether it was something that is revealed through uh, the Apostle Paul or Peter or James or John, all of it originates with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. But if you don't keep his commandments, you stop abiding in his love. That's a lot of what First John is about. And the way to recover is to confess sin, to admit and acknowledge your sin, and then we are restored to a position of intimacy. But then we have to, it's not just a passive thing, like we're just sitting there on our hands. We are to be obedient to everything Jesus says to do in the New Testament. And that includes aspects of prayer, 
where we are praying for one another continuously, where we are uh, engaged in being a verbal witness to the gospel to those around us, where we are to live a life that does not manifest uh, sins, overt sins, mental attitude sins, or sins of the tongue, but a life that manifests the fruit of the Spirit. That's why Jesus, uh, I mean, Paul says in uh, Galatians 5.16 that you are to walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not bring to completion the deeds of the flesh. And then he lists the fruit of the Spirit later. That is produced by abiding in Christ, abiding in his love, walking by the Spirit, walking in light, walking in the truth. John says this same thing in 1 John 2, 5, but whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is being matured, not perfect in the sense of flawlessness, but being brought to its conclusion, its maturation process. Whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is matured in him. By this we know that we are in him, and there that is the love for God, because if we love God, we keep his commandments. In 2 John 6, he says, This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that, as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. And then in 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And in John chapter 16, uh, Jesus says that there's no greater love has a man than that he give his life for his brother. And so this is the background for what John says in First John 3.16 and in verse 17, But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? So it has a practical application in terms of meeting the genuine needs of others. This isn't some kind of emotional response to because somebody has manipulated you with guilt or their sob story or something of that nature, but you recognize that there are uh, believers who have legitimate needs. And this congregation has manifested that in a lot of different ways to people in this congregation who've gone through times of unemployment. They have gone through times of difficulty. And every now and then I'll hear somebody tell me, well, so-and-so put a tank of gas in my car, so-and-so did this or did that. Somebody was uh, contributing substantial amounts of money to help another person who was unemployed. And this is a manifestation of love for one another. It is not the kind of thing where you pull up at a stoplight and there's a homeless person there with a squeegee to try to wipe your windshield and then you feel bad and so you throw a dollar at him. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about legitimate needs and helping people in a way that helps them move toward spiritual maturity. So this is what Paul is talking about. He remembers them. And so he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayer. So next time we'll come back and we'll get more into this because this really sets up the content of the prayer that comes in the, uh, in the next uh, four or five verses.
Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to be reminded that part of what should be manifested in our lives as we grow spiritually is this love for one another and understanding what that means, that it's not talking about emotion or sentiment, but it's talking about a mental attitude of doing that which is good and beneficial and spiritually profitable for others. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word because to truly love someone, we cannot be walking according to our sin nature, which orients us only to selfishness and only to doing what is good for us. We have to be walking by means of the Spirit. Father, we thank you that we have the opportunity to see how Paul prayed and what he prayed for and that we can use that as an example and a pattern in our own prayer life. And, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here listening or anyone online listening, listening to this message, that if they've never trusted in Christ as Savior, then it would be clear from what we taught this, this morning that salvation is based on believing in Christ, that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, who died on the cross for our sins, and that by believing in him we have everlasting life, and that all that is necessary is to believe in him and instantly You credit us with the righteousness of Christ. You give us eternal life, and we are adopted into your royal family forever and ever, and that can never be lost. Father, we thank you for all of the many blessings and benefits that you have given us spiritually, and we pray that we may learn to use them and to apply them and to live in light of them in every aspect of our life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.